Welcome to the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast, where we invite you into a journey of healing and personal transformation that will radically change your divorce experience, heal your heart while refining your character, and set you up to be effective and feel empowered as you navigate the practical and emotional challenges of divorce. I'm your host, Karen McMahon, founder of Journey Beyond Divorce. My divorce brought me to my knees, and it also transformed me and set me on this path to help you. Our team of JBD coaches support men and women to engage in divorce with more calm, clarity, and confidence through our one-on-one coaching, group programs, online courses, and free resources. People are afraid, and it's, you know, a lot of fear in how do, how, how would, well, am I going to go from a two-income house to a one-income house, or how am I going, or gee, I've never worked before, uh, how am I going to, how am I going to live, am I going to have to get a job, am I going to have some type of a settlement, is there going to be child support, all these questions come up. And, you know, without getting into the psychology of divorce of do I stay or do I go based on money, sometimes I find that it's very important, I guess, to be able to answer maybe it's three questions. Welcome to the Divorce Roadmap series, comprised of 24 episodes designed to be your guide through each leg of the practical divorce journey. Be powerfully prepared as top experts in the field advise you on each logistical stage from the agonizing question of should I stay or should I go through the complex legal, financial, and parenting choices before you to your future plans for housing, budgeting, and co-parenting post-divorce. At Journey Beyond Divorce, we understand that navigating through the emotional tsunami of separation and divorce is one of the hardest journeys you'll take. And we know that once the initial fear and pain begins to pass, a whole new storm of confusion, uncertainty, and self-doubt can surface. Journey Beyond Divorce can help you identify and clarify where you're feeling stuck and what steps you need to move forward even if they're just baby steps. We guide you with practical, tangible support that you can start implementing right away. Our team of experienced divorce coaches is ready to help you. Listen through the show because we have a gift just for you. It'll help you navigate your divorce with more calm and confidence. I'm really excited about today's show because of all of the things that I coach around where people of all economic statuses feel huge fear is around the finances. And it's really understandable because there's so much uncertainty as you move through divorce in terms of what your financial standing currently is and what it's going to look like post-divorce. The best strategy 
is to get educated because the more you know, the less fear you will have and the less fear will be the controlling factor in the choices you make and the reactions that you have. And today, I'm really excited to have a special guest with us, Elizabeth Polizzi, who works for Merrill Lynch in Garden City, New York. And the re- there's a couple of reasons I invited Elizabeth on. First of all, she's an incredibly no-nonsense straight talker, straight shooter, which I think is exactly what our listeners need. Uh, and she's also been through a divorce and and a pretty prickly one at that. And so one of the things that Elizabeth's going to do today is share with us not only what each person uh, should do, what those five steps are, but really share her own lessons and wisdom in going through the journey. And finally, I've um, had a number of clients who've worked with Elizabeth. And one of the things that I was always struck by was how they came back feeling better about their financial picture than before they went, clearer on what their next steps were, and confident in negotiating going forward. And so I'm really excited, Elizabeth, to have you with us today. Thanks, Karen. I'm happy to be here. Before we jump into your five essential steps, how did you get involved in the financial industry? Uh, I've been um, working with clients and managing money probably for close to 30 years. Uh, I went to school uh, wanting, you know, to become a dentist, and that didn't really seem to pan out to me, you know, for me. So I, uh, uh, you know, I, I guess you absorb what you're around. My mother uh, was always a trust and estate accountant, so I was always around the numbers, the, the the stocks and bonds and things like that, and I, I had an interest in it. Um, so I actually did my training with Merrill Lynch a very long time ago in Forest Hills. And uh, have ended up recently coming back home to them now. But, um, you know, during that time, I guess I've specialized in um, in families, uh, in multi-generations of the families. You know, once I get to know you, I want you to be so comfortable with me that you come to me for everything. All, all transitions, all aspects of your life. Financially, I, I hope that you would turn toward me. So recently, I guess, you know... Um, I'm 51 years old, and maybe this is a time where I don't know the answer to this. Maybe people are are coming into, if you're going to get a divorce, maybe this is the age. But suddenly, in the past seven years, more and more of my business is not only retirement planning and college planning and estate planning, but it's become uh, divorce negotiating and divorce planning. So I guess I've answered a little bit more of your question. So sort of how did I get into the business and how did so much of my business recently become helping people navigate their divorces financially? Absolutely. And that's that was going to be my next question. So let's jump in because I know you have so much experience and so much uh, wisdom to share. Let's start at the beginning. How do our listeners 
someone's just entering divorce. Like that's where we're going to start. And and for the listening audience, today is all about the early stages of divorce and and those five key steps. Later on in the series, we'll be talking about finances again in the midst of divorce and then and then even post-divorce. But Elizabeth, today we're speaking to people who are entering the process. How do they begin on the financial front? What what are your what do you suggest in terms of first steps? Uh, I think, Karen, the the thing that you said that was earlier in your introdu- introduction is that um, people are afraid, and it's you know a lot of fear. In how do how how well, am I going to go from a two income house to a one income house, or how am I going? Or gee, I've never worked before. Uh, how am I going to how am I going to live? Am I going to have to get a job? Am I going to have some type of a settlement? Is there going to be child support? All these questions come up, and you know, without getting into the psychology of divorce, of do I stay or do I go based on money, sometimes. I find that it's very important, I guess, to be able to answer maybe it's three questions. What do we have? Um, and how to answer what do we have is by saying, let me find out what we have. Some people know, you know, whether it's men or women who, who I deal with. Some people will come into me. If it's a man, I go to work every day. I don't know what we have on hand. My wife handles everything. Sometimes I get, you know, and all I do is come and I bring home the paycheck. Sometimes I get a woman that will come in who doesn't work and she says, well, my husband handles everything. I don't know what we have. Um, And then sometimes I get two people that they both work and, you know, they're just not aware of what's where and what's what. The first thing I'm going to tell you is find out everything you've got. Find your statements, gather all those, collect, go into sort of a gathering, a hunting and gathering mode and get all those statements and figure out what you have where. So I guess number one is, what do we have? And when you are going through a divorce, one of the first things they ask you is for a financial disclosure or a financial statement of where are all of the assets. So the very first thing I say is find out what do you have. Full bank account statements, whether there are brokerage accounts, whether there are IRAs, whether your job has a 401k, uh, if the kids have um, 529 plans for their college, whether there are savings accounts for the children because the children would have a custodian, anything that you could think of that has a dollar sign attached to it, please try to collect all of that information. So that would be my first step one. What do we have? And what, what I didn't hear you say that I think is, is part of it is – not only the assets, but what do we have in terms of debt? Yes. I'm sorry. Yes, that's definitely important. So that is, okay, here's all my pluses. This is everything that we have. Now, what do we owe? And, oh, gotcha. And another thing, collect all of those statements. What do we owe? Then once I had that, my what do we have and what do we owe? And, and it's going to take digging. I mean, you're going to have to just collect your mail, go through your files, dig it all out and try to get it organized. I find that the more organized people are through this, the more calming and experienced it could be. It, it shouldn't be haphazard and all over the place. I would try to go through it 
something so very emotional, as business-like as I could, by saying, here's my pluses, here's my minuses. And once I collected those, there's what do I have and what do I owe. Then, Karen, I think the next step I go to, unless you think I'm leaving anything out there. No, but before we jump on to the next step, I just I, I want to just uh, jump in here and share. I think what you just said about make it business is is absolutely vital in in my personal circumstance. I was looking a whole lot at more about what we owed than what we had. And and as I was going through the statements and getting lost in them, I actually had my one and only anxiety attack of my life. And so if you're a listener and you're in a situation where you know that there's just a lot of debt that's been gathered and even in either situation, but I would say especially in that one, when you're going through those statements, just just putting them in chronological order and having everything without getting lost in the details is a really, really good suggestion because it'll, it'll help you keep your head above emotional waters, which is really what we want. Right. I, I really agree with that. I mean, what I would try to do, is, I think it's so very difficult to take emotions out of this, but I would beg of you to try to, and to try to look at when you're pulling statements, it's numbers. Try to look at it. Is it a number with a plus in front of it, or is it a number with a minus in front of it? And that's really how I would go about that. And, and I mean, it could be so simple as gathering all of that up, calculating it and calculating. Here's my two columns, my assets and my debts. So before we move on, what about I recently have a client who's whose um, whose spouse makes a very decent amount of money and she doesn't necessarily have access to everything. So before we move on, when you talk about gathering, what do we have? Do you have suggestions for clients who don't necessarily have all the passwords and access? Um. You know, that gets tricky, Karen, and that's that's not, I'm going to say that that's a little bit out of my realm, but what I would say is, you know, I don't know if, if your spouse knows that you're going and want to file for divorce. I mean, you could just ask, what do we have and where is it? Uh, and the other thing, are they joint accounts? If they're joint accounts, you have a right to them. If they aren't joint accounts, it's very tricky. Uh, if your name is not on a statement, then, you know, no, no banking or brokerage institute is going to give that spouse any information. So, so you know, I would say come straight out and ask or once you do get a divorce or, or start filing, there is a disclosure statement that both spouses have to disclose everything they have. Right. So that's what I was going to say. It sounds like if you're in that situation, if that question is one that you're like really interested in hearing the answer to uh, more than the financial person who helps you going to your attorney and letting them know uh, what 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 you're what you do and don't have access to and what you need their support with that 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 would uh, that support would come more on a legal front than a financial front. Yes, definitely. Okay. You know, and there's all kinds of legal ways that clients have rights, you know, to do that. And especially if you feel that, wait a minute, I think we have more money than this. 
definitely explore that with the attorney, Karen. That's very wise. And the other thing I want to kind of say right up front is even if your name isn't on the accounts and, and Elizabeth, if you feel comfortable speaking to this, the, the truth of the matter is if you've been married for a number of years, marital assets are, are marital, even if he or she says they're not. Uh, and so there's certain there's certain guidelines for that. But very often in contentious situations, and if you are not the moneyed spouse, you may be told that the house isn't yours because your name isn't on it. The accounts aren't yours. The money isn't yours. And that's not exactly true. So I don't know if you want to just touch on that before we move on, Elizabeth. Yes. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. It does not matter if it's in a joint account or in an individual account. Um, it is a marital asset. And I've seen it work both ways. I've seen where a spouse has thought that, hey, wait a minute, this is all money I've earned or I inherited and I put this into a joint account. Why do I have to share this? Just because I put it into a joint account, how stupid am I? I should have kept it an individual name. It doesn't matter whose name it's in. It's a marital asset. Unless it's something that was legally taken out of the marriage, you know, beforehand with any kind of prenuptial paperwork, or if it was something that was done, a lot of legal, to get it out of the, you know, marital, uh, marital assets. So, yes, Karen, you're absolutely right. What I was more or less talking about was just let's say you had a statement over at the Bank of America and it just had one client's name on it, one spouse's name on it. If you were to call the bank and you are the other spouse, the bank is not necessarily going to give you access or information on that account. That is not to say that you don't have a right to those funds. Perfect. That's exactly what I wanted to get across to everybody. So, okay, so marital assets are belong to you and your spouse, regardless of what your spouse's opinion of that rule is. And so here we are, we're starting. First thing we're suggesting is what do I have? What do we have? What do we owe? Where do we go from there, Elizabeth? Once you have that, um, that's a great bit of information that you, you, you have. And I, and I hope that once you have that information, it's a bit calming to have that all. But really, just I, I keep getting back to this. Keep it as organized as possible. I'm going to even say make a file, make your list, you know, make your list and check it twice. But once you have that, the next step that I would go on to is what do I need? And what do I need encompasses what are my monthly costs to live? You know, so that's something that, you know, if you're a planner and if you are the bill payer, it might be as easy as going into your bill pay if you do it electronically and saying, here's everything I have. And, uh, you know, here, here's our monthly bills. And these are my expenses. Um, what is this going to cost me to now live on my own? And um, are you going to live in the marital house? Are you going to move out? And are you going to rent a place? Are you going to buy another place? You know, what is that going to cost? So I would say step number two, according to me, is what do I need to live every month? 
And what's great about that is in these early stages, if you're listening, you may be thinking, well, well, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. And the question is going to help you make the decision. So once you see what you're currently spending and you start looking at the picture, you may say, I absolutely want to stay in the marital residence. And the numbers will show that you can or can't carry it. And that's going to be really, really helpful information in determining what you ask your attorney to ultimately negotiate for. Right. You know, so the more the more knowledge that you have here, you know, what you're doing right now is you're educating yourself. You're making yourself smart. It's knowledgeable. You're going in with all these, um, you know, with all this power. And and there is power in knowledge, and that power is negotiating power for your next step. So I, I agree with that, you know, very much because, you know, running a house as as a as one person is different than running a house as two people, especially if there are two incomes. If there's, you know, one of these spouses is now making a negotiation and saying, I don't work. But even though I don't work, I was a very active part of this marriage by taking care of the kids while while you worked, by, you know, by doing everything else that maybe wasn't getting a paycheck but was allowing you to go work so that we have our lifestyle. So that would lead me to – I'm sorry, go ahead. I didn't nope, no, jump right in. Uh, that now leads me to my next step. Uh, and my next step is what do I want? So I'll start with what do I have? That's my inventory. What do I need? That's my monthly inventory of my costs. And what is it here that I want? You know, they say that a divorce settlement should be equitable. Equitable doesn't always mean equal. It means fairly distributed. So now we have to say, you know, if there's two people that work and we have two people that have retirement plans and two people that both have incomes that are even, sometimes those are a little bit easier to split. Uh, my situation was very much like that. And you would think that my situation would be easy because, you know, we both made pretty much the same amount of money. Uh, we both contributed to the house the same. We had, you know, even even the number of cars we had were equal, easy, easy to split. We both had our own retirement plans. Uh, and my divorce still ended up, there was a hitch and, you know, I ended up taking almost five years to get done. So nothing is simple. Um, but you would think, should two people be working like that, um, that it would be uh, easy. You know, it, or now you have maybe one spouse is working and the other spouse doesn't work. And that spouse has to say, well, just because I don't work doesn't mean that I shouldn't get get a, get half of our home. I shouldn't get part of your retirement. I shouldn't get some maybe some type of a monthly alimony. I think now this is the part that says, what do I want? And what do I want sometimes is a little bit difficult to figure out. And, and I think, Karen, now I'm getting ahead of myself where I'm maybe not getting financial. Now I'm getting, it gets, this gets a little bit emotional, I think. Right. And I think that, again, one of the key things at this point that I just want to highlight is regardless of what 
your spouse is saying that that marital assets will be uh, divvied, divvied up equitably. And it's so vitally important that you enter this negotiation understanding that you're discussing what's ours, not what's his or hers. And it's probably one of the hugest uh, obstacles that I find clients have to overcome, especially if they're not the uh, the spouse who's who's out making the money is, you know, he or she has been saying it's theirs all along. So so that's one of the things I would really encourage as a takeaway from today is if that's you and you're having a hard time wrapping your brain around the fact that the money isn't his or hers, it's ours, begin to work on that. Start noticing that. Every divorce has its unique challenges. Having helped people in many different high-conflict divorces, I know that when children and alcohol are involved, the situation becomes even more challenging. Whether you are concerned about child safety when an ex is co-parenting, or trying to prove your sobriety for custody, finding a reliable system that you trust can be difficult. That's why I love and recommend Soberlink. Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system makes it easy to document sobriety in real time, ensuring child safety and providing tangible evidence of sobriety to the court as needed. It's easy to use and has features like facial recognition, tamper detection, and advanced reporting that all work together to improve your life during this difficult time. To help those in my audience who are going through divorce with children, I've worked with Soberlink to develop five tips for divorces involving children that you can download at www.soberlink.com backslash JBD. Can you just explain, because I know what you explained has a name for it and a statement. So can we just uh, talk a little bit about that first step and the net worth statement and um, the purpose of it? The purpose for a net worth statement is, is to help your lawyer negotiate a settlement, is to see how much money is in the marriage and where that money is. You know, some money is liquid, like money in bank accounts, liquid meaning it's readily available, it's readily turned into cash. And some money is put away for retirement, that's not liquid. Uh, some money is not liquid, that it's in investable hard assets, like your house, like your car, like your boat, like a second home, um, like maybe artwork, um, you know, other other things that you might own that have value. So it's a way, and the reason that it is a tool, it's a negotiating tool. It's a tool for the lawyers to look at to say, here's what they've got, and what do we need to do to negotiate with these two people to be able to come up with a settlement um, and get them to move on with their lives and to, to get a divorce and to split. And the the bottom line is when it comes to divorce it's 
really about divvying up parenting time and finances. And so when you're talking about negotiating, you've got your distribution of assets and you have your support, be it child support, spousal support, one or both or either. Right. So. So. Yeah. So what what Elizabeth is saying is that that net worth statement is really because divorce is so much about the distribution of funds that it's it's the it's such a vital tool. And if money scares you, this is where you want to reach out to uh, a financial expert like Elizabeth, who can help you understand and see and gather, because this is I've, I've had clients who put the head in the sand. They got scared around money. They didn't want to deal with it. And it was like going into negotiations, deaf, dumb and blind. You do not want to do that. No matter what your discomfort around money, you want to step out of your comfort zone and engage in this practice of understanding what you have, what you need, what you owe, because it's going to be an absolutely crucial part of your divorce negotiation. I I agree very much. Karen, just to add one thing that you said there, the the putting your head in the sand is fear-based. I think the more information that you have about where your money is, what do I have, and what do we owe, that more information takes the fear away. So I think it's definitely worth the exercise of finding all of that out. It gives you power. Yeah, in, in this case... Um Information is is very very powerful. When we were talking, Elizabeth, the other day, you we we talked about the different types of listeners we might have, and so uh, the the advice you might give to, for instance, um, the the non earner bill payer, and in terms of support and dis and distribution, equitable distribution. I think we were talking about maintenance too. What would you say to that person? Um, you know, that you are a very, you, you are and have been a very important part of the marriage. Just because you are not an earner doesn't mean that you're not entitled to a settlement and you're not entitled to a lifestyle. Why should your lifestyle change so much um, just because you're leaving the marriage? And so even I, if it's that say, person's decision or quote unquote fault, like whatever is going on in the story in their marriage, both distribution. And I'm curious about spousal maintenance, because that's another thing where the other spouse may have strong stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I'm just not understanding the question. I'm sorry. Ask it to me again. The non-earner who um, who fears that um, they, they don't have any rights to um, support, spousal support. Okay, well, you know, they do. And, you know, just you you live a certain lifestyle married. Um, You know, New York is now a no-fault state for divorce. So, you know, you have rights for, for a spousal support as well as a child support. And it's something that is a reason why you need that first tool to be able to say, well, gee, what do we have? And even though I didn't work, maybe I contributed to him or her making the amount of money that they're making. And what's equitable for me to walk away from this marriage? And what's equitable is not always what your, is what your spouse is going to be telling you. 
it's there there is an entitlement and what if you were working with the primary wage earner what what's the direction or guidance you give that person um to be aware that you know just because your spouse didn't work doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility here upon divorce so the same thing is what's fair and sometimes i would ask that person to sit with what's fair for you and maybe you should be considering what you are going to make as an offer rather than getting tied up with attorneys and having them go back and forth because the courts really don't want you coming there to do the negotiating. They kind of want the negotiating done before you go into that courthouse. Because if it's not done, they'll tell you, well, why don't you go back and come see us in three weeks? And in three weeks, no magic is going to happen when you walk back into that courthouse. They're basically there to take your temperature and say, how'd we do? Did we come to any kind of meeting? And if you say, no, we're still this far apart, the court's going to tell you, okay, we'll see you next month. And they don't want to make a decision. They want the, the, the two spouses to make that decision. So what I would be saying, I think, to the earner is, how much do I want to give? What is an equitable amount that I think I should be giving? If we bought this house together, we should split the house. If I make X amount of dollars and I guess I have to pay my spouse X amount of money a month. You know, my kids, there's formulas for child support. That's a kind of a whole other number. But I would say to either spouse, try to figure out what my offer is that I would be comfortable with. Uh, either way, what do I want as the non-earner and as the earner, what am I willing to give equitably? The faster you two could come up with those numbers, the faster your divorce will get settled. No magic is going to happen in that courtroom, not until the very end. If this ever ends up going to trial and you do not want it to go to trial because of the amount of money that is spent just walking in in legal fees to a courtroom. And the more negotiating that can be done before going to visit the courts once a month or whenever, the less legal fees you're having. So I would say try to come to a head intelligently, equitably, with your heart, you know, with your head, without having to pay the lawyers. Because just keep into mind, in mind, that's needing into your money. So how much fighting is really worthwhile? So, you know, what I hear you saying is sometimes there's, and this I believe was both mine and your experience, sometimes there's there's one party who's being a little bit uh, more level-headed and rational, and the other person might be um, vindictive, they might be angry, they might just be in denial and resistance still, and so they're not really on that page. And one of the things I think is so important to understand is even if... If your soon-to-be ex is not following these guidelines, follow them anyway, because the more informed you are, the clearer you are, the more you're just asking for what 
you believe you you need and and deserve and want, the more you are are clear on what that looks like and and your reasoning behind that, the better you're going to be at negotiating. And to Elizabeth's point, so much money. Um, your divorce, Elizabeth, was five years. Mine was three and a half. So much money was just bled away. And it may not always bleed away because of money. In my case, it was more a custody battle. But on the money front, there's a lot that once you have all of that information, there's a lot that you can try and do up front being reasonable rather than, you know, the, the, the tens of thousands of dollars that go to the attorneys. Right. And, you know, Karen, it, it, there's no magic to it. And you're right. Sometimes people people aren't themselves anymore through this. Uh, for some people, they can't treat it like a business. Um, and it is the business of divorce. So if you can keep it like a business and as hard as you can, when you go into those courtrooms or when you have to negotiate or when you're working with your attorney, Try to be cut and dry. Try to be businesslike. It, there's no help in the emotion because it, it's um, it's brutal and it, it makes things go on and it's cutting and it's it's just not good. I, I would say that the one thing is is if you could try to be businesslike and try not to ever lose your dignity and always be proud of your behavior. Because remember, that spouse was once somebody that you loved. Now, I don't know. Sometimes you look like, oh, my God, what happened here? How did this shrink to what we've turned into? But I I would say try to keep your dignity um, because it's money. And, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into this. So try to figure out what you want and not be crazy about asking for a certain number like what is equitable? And try to do that meeting in the middle. And sometimes remember that you don't have to speak to your spouse. The attorneys have to speak to one another. So if you tell your attorney what you want and what you're willing to give up, your attorney represents you. So in order to take the emotion out of it, let the attorney do the negotiating with the other attorney before you get to the courtroom. Try to get through that ahead of time. And and I would actually add to that. If you tell your attorney what you want and they tell you that you're really off of the mark and that given their many, many years of experience that you're either um, selling yourself short or, or asking for way more than any judge would give you, so many people have a bad rap about attorneys, which we talked about in the last section of our series. The vast majority of them are there to protect you and and advise you well. And so, you know, really keep an open mind to what your attorneys have to say, because it's going to really help you in the long run and save you money. Yes, I agree with you. I mean, they're pros. This is not the first divorce that they're going through. I agree with you. So let's look at a couple of the um, ancillary things. Well, before I do that, is so we know what we want. We know that we're trying to negotiate with our soon-to-be ex. Uh, is there anything else 
on that general uh, view that you want to share with our listeners in terms of that negotiating process? Um, you know, sometimes people are angry at one another and they're not reasonable. And they there is a bit of maybe vindictiveness and there's a bit of anger and hurt. So people react not not intelligently. It's a very emotional, visceral reaction. So sometimes I think that if you could step away from it and say, okay, here's what I've got and here's what I want and listen, we're only a little bit away from one another. Without dragging this on forever, what, what can I possibly give up in order to get this done? And in my case, um, my ex was suing me for um, like $2 million. And it was so off the wall what he was asking for that it wasn't realistic. You know, it, it wasn't a real number, but he wouldn't stop. Even with the advice of his attorneys, uh, the advice of the court, he just wouldn't stop doing it. So it was continually going on. So as we were negotiating some things, um, you know, upon the sale of the house, okay, he got a couple of dollars more upon that sale. I, I thought that would be enough. Um, and he said, you still want to live in the house? Okay, live in the house. You know, you could do that. But um, what finally happened was as we were sitting there, I was saying to myself, what could I possibly give this guy to maybe make this stop? And um, one of the, the next things I'm going to tell you is be creative. Don't always look outside for somebody to be creative. You're very smart and you know that spouse better than anybody else. So what came to mind one day when I was sitting there was I still had my engagement ring. And um, I, I thought to myself, well, gee, maybe if I offered to give him that bag, maybe he wouldn't want $2 million anymore. I, I didn't know. I, uh, it was sort of a, a long shot, but I figured, let me try so I leaned over and I, told, I asked my attorney, I said, why don't you negotiate with that? We were sitting at a table. And uh, he was thrilled. And for an engagement ring that, I don't know, was maybe worth, what could it be, $15,000? I don't know. Uh, that ended up making my $2 million problem go away. <laughs> wow. Yes. Well, then the next part of my problem was having to locate my engagement ring. <laughs> <laughs> which I was usually keeping in my car in like a tin of mint. So I did find it. And uh, after a number of years, that made one of my problems go away. So just because somebody's asking you for an astronomical amount of money doesn't mean they're going to get it. And it doesn't even mean that they want it. So try to be creative in that. And that creativity is part of negotiation. I, I think that, you know, the, the emotions just keep weaving back into our conversation. I had worked with another financial planner who told a story about a couple who spent thousands of dollars fighting over something that was worth a fraction of the money that they spent fighting over it. So even when it comes to personal property, um, it, it, to, to just keep in mind that every time you, you know, you call your attorney and you complain about your soon to be 
3x and you try another way of going around it, what's the value of what you're actually fighting for? Um, and I think that your story is is also speaks to the um, concept that just because they ask for it doesn't mean you're going to give it. There's always a counter proposal. And the more creative you are and the more you take a step back and think about what might work, uh, the the further along you can get. Right. I, I think that, um, you know, don't 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 forget. Trust yourself and trust your knowledge of the other person. And. Don't be afraid to be creative and discuss it with your attorneys. The attorneys, will, they know. Uh, they don't know all the things you have, maybe, but they know how to negotiate with that. So, you know, I, I think those are that's some good advice there when, when thinking about negotiating. Just remember the one most important thing. You don't have to negotiate back with something with that much value. It just has to be a negotiation. Right, right, which is a really good point. And um, the other thing that I, I come across is I've had clients who say, you know, it's it's not even about the money. It's 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 the whole. Uh, I want it to be fair. I want I don't want him or her to win. Mm. And, you know, I wonder if you could just. I know this is kind of crossing the financial and the emotional line, but like, what is your thought on that? I, you know, I feel a few things. One of the things I feel is it's always about the money, even though when people say it's not, it's about the money. And I also feel like, why get caught up in that? There's so much more to your life that you're just about to step out, you know, of that tunnel and start something beautiful, why end something terribly? It's really not that important. And for a couple of dollars, for an engagement ring, for an IRA, for a car, for something like that, does it really matter? You know, um, this is outside of my realm right now, Karen. This is more you. But I'm just telling you, as somebody who's gone through a divorce and, you know, I'm I guess, you know, I have a lot of feelings and I'm, I'm an emotional person. So my feeling is it's really just not worth it. It's not worth the, what's fair and what's not. And what are you going to be able to live with? How are you going to be able to live with yourself? Remember, the one person in this divorce that you still have to be with after the divorce is you. So I think you want to be proud of your behavior. And that's sort of something I try to keep in the back of my mind. And it goes back to not losing your dignity. So, you know, what's fair, what's not fair. Sometimes things aren't always fair. And sometimes you just have to say, I really just kind of want to get this done. And I want to get on with the rest of my life. Yeah, good point. One, one of the big areas, in fact, I think you would agree, um, one, most people, one of their largest financial investments is their home. And so there's a lot of emotion and there's also a lot of misunderstanding around the value and how to best negotiate that. Should I stay? Should I go? Should I buy him or her out? Should I? Can you talk a little bit about from a financial perspective uh, how you advise people when they're looking at at their um, their primary residence and what to do with that? Oh, sure. You know, sometimes the very first thing people do is they tend to go right to the computer. 
you know, let me go on, let me go to Zillow and let me see what this estimate for my house is. And you punch in the address and an estimate will come up and it'll say, oh, it went up or down within the last 30 days. Well, that's not the market value of your house. That's like the tax base value. So one of the first things I'd say to you is if you seriously want to know the value of the house, um, you need to get an appraisal by a local realtor. And sometimes each spouse likes to have their own appraisal. Uh, usually it doesn't cost anything, but I would say if you had a friend who was a realtor or you just went into a local real estate place, somebody that was reputable in your town, uh, have somebody come in and get an appraisal. And why not get to? So now you have this appraisal. This is the market value of your house. And I would keep that number in my mind and I would say, well, if that value is a million dollars, if that value is half a million dollars, the next thing I would have to find out is how much money do we owe? What's our mortgage? What kind of equity do we have in the house? So after I found out what I owed, and now I could find out what my equity is. What is that house worth? So if you have a $500,000 house, you put down $100,000 and you've been paying your mortgage for a while and maybe you maybe you have equity in that house of 300,000 and debt of only 200,000. So now the thought is that okay, I have this $500,000 house. We owe 200,000, but it's 250 a piece. You know, I can I buy him or her out for 250,000. You know, is that a way of settling? So I guess the thing I would do when looking at my house would be to say, let me first get my appraisal. That would be the number one thing. And the, the smartest way to do that, uh, I really, I don't know anybody who charges for an appraisal, is I would get two realtors from your town to get the appraisal on the house and see the value. Then I would find out what I owed. And in doing that, then I think you would sit with your financial advisor to say, can I afford this? Right. Um, and then I would also take into consideration my real estate taxes. But that would be something, again, um, that's so individual, Karen, that I would really sit with somebody to do that, but they would need to come to me with that information. No, that's good. And that's a great starting point, too. Yeah. And, and again, when looking for financial advice, it's kind of like going to the doctor. If you have all your medical files with you, the doctor has a big picture about how your whole entire body is working, not just maybe a broken arm. Um, so when you go to see a financial planner, you want to gather all of that financial data that we talked about, the value of your house. You want to gather all of what do I have. So the more information you show up with, the better your financial planner is going to be able to help you. And one of the things I understand is when you when you work with someone going through a divorce, there's also that ability to have them look forward. You know, when we're on the battlefield and we're fighting for what we think is fair, the whole concept of what do I need five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road is is lost on most people. It's very hard for them to to look at their finances in that direction. And isn't that something that that you can help with? Yes, very much so. Um, because you're not always going to be in this situation. Hopefully this situation is going to end. <laughs> and hopefully it doesn't take three years and it doesn't take five years. 
hopefully with all the advice that you're able to give people and, um, you know, all the smarts that people are gathering, they're able to do this a little bit quicker, hopefully. But if not, this is only going to last a finite amount of time. Once this is over, now you get to go on with the rest of your life. So what am I going to do exactly, Karen, in five years? What am I going to do in 10? What am I going to do when I retire? Um, that's all plans that, that I can help you with. And it's, you know, it's something that is very nice. And I think it's very hopeful to be able to be outward looking and not just suck right where you are today, because I promise this part of it ends and then you get to go on and live the rest of your life. And it's very empowering to take, and it doesn't matter if it's a lot or a little, but to be able to say, okay, this is what I'm walking away with, and this is what I can create and grow and look forward to. And it it does take you out of the battle and into the realm of possibility and and growth and forward movement. And so that's another thing that I think is so valuable when working with a financial planner is because you're actually straddling the where you are and the where you want to be. And it's it's a nice balance. It can be very encouraging. Yes, I, you know, I definitely think so. I had a lady come in to see me one time and um, she was she was divorced. It was finalized. And she was so upset still. And, and she came in with her finances. And I, and I said, what's the matter? Like, how come? You know, this is over. You did the hard part. And she said, you know, every time I meet somebody and I tell them, someone I know, someone dear to me, and I share with them what happened in my divorce and what I ended up giving up, all my friends tell me what a fool I was. All my family tells me what a fool I was. So after sitting with this lady for about a half hour and we reviewed sort of what they had together and what she walked away with. I told her I thought that she was brilliant. And maybe she had just given this guy a little tiny bit, and I mean like a smidgen, more than he was due. But she ended up settling way faster. She was like a number of months and uh, finalized. And she was on with her life. And I said to her, you have to stop thinking that way. And what doesn't matter what other people say to you. It's what you knew was in that marriage. And let me tell you, as a financial expert, you're brilliant that you gave him that little bit extra. And you, maybe you would have paid it in legal fees anyway, or maybe not. But, but anyway, you should be able to walk away with your head held high. So she, she dried her tears, you know, and uh, I think she walked out of my office feeling much lighter. And I also don't think she was telling anybody anymore what kind of settlement she made. So, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that's a great story. And I, again, I'm going to say that I've sent numerous clients your way and, and who all kind of walked in. And it's interesting because just like with the emotional part of it, it, everybody has an opinion and you start listening to everyone's opinion and you can get very lost and to, and to go to a financial person who can look at your numbers from that business perspective and with that broader perspective is just brilliant because because you can walk away really embracing all of the positive of where you are and where you want to go and and that's a that's just such a great story to to back that that point up you know i i want to ask you about something bef before we begin to wrap up a uh, uh, a lot of people 
find themselves in a situation where they just they can't find the money or they don't know enough. And uh, there's a party that might come into the picture called a, a, a forensic accountant. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and when that might be necessary? Sure. Uh, the forensic accountant, you know, we've all watched those TV shows like, uh, you know, uh, SVU and NCIS, all those kind of murder mysteries on TV. And forensics are just people that look for all the information that happened in a, in a study of maybe that that murder. But instead, this is forensic accounting. So they're going to go and delve into all the clues that they could find and all the information about yours and your spouse's financials. But in this case, you know what yours are. The forensic detective in this case uh, is an accountant who does detective work uh, on your account, or it's a detective who does uh, detecting through your spouse's uh, accounts. And how that would come about is if you went to your attorney and you said, look, I don't know what he or she has, but I do know that there's more money here, or I do believe there's more money that I'm seeing. How do we go about doing it? How do we discover and your attorney will have people um, that they hire. And I, I think they cost probably about 500 or or $1,000 um, or sometimes less, depending on the scope of things, that they'll hire to go and do the exploring and find everything out. So that's something that your attorney sets you up with. So if you if your spouse has a cash business, if you think that there are accounts that you can't find, if there's even a business, isn't that another one? Like if your if your spouse owns a business and you want to uh, get a value of it, is that a forensic accounting thing? Yes, definitely. Okay. So if you're in that situation where you have something that's outside of the realm of um, your your uh, your spouse just bringing home a W-2 and getting a regular paycheck, and there's a lot of questions about money, you may want to ask your attorney about forensic accounting and if it makes sense in your particular situation. And that's just going to add to the amount of information you have so that you can negotiate well for yourself. Right. It's, it's just a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more information. So as we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to share with our uh, with our listeners that we didn't? And if not, a words of wisdom that you would like to leave them with? Uh, I think we really covered a lot today. And and I think that if I, you know, have, have to think about, you know, um, you know, what we've talked about, it was really those three things. What do you have? What do you need? And what do you want? But I guess... My my words of wisdom are this this time in your life is temporary and um, don't lose yourself in it. You know, uh, keep your dignity and 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 be proud of the person that you were during it, that you are during it so that when you walk away, you know, you're still you. And it's very emotional um, and it takes a lot of self-control keep it as businesslike as you can. And I, I think that, you know, another thing I would say is 
uh, to seek out help, whether it's the help and support of your friends and family, um, whether it's a financial person, whether it's somebody as terrific as Karen that's got all the insight into things like you do, Karen. I mean, I, I guess I would say look for the support. Um, keep your dignity and know that this is only a temporary situation in your life, that there's there's great things to come. Awesome. I want to summarize. We, we're, we're calling this the, the five essential steps. And so you have, you know, what do I have? What do I need? What do I want? You have, uh, so that's your first three. Four is negotiating uh, with a level head, right? Keeping it business-like. Yeah. And yeah. then the other thing that, that, um, that Elizabeth uh, suggested was being creative and clever in the counter proposals and the negotiating. So I think that if you, I, I, I strongly suggest that if you keep those, those five steps in mind as you go through this, it's really going to help you uh, negotiate, a, you know, an, an equitable and fair settlement. I agree. I think that's a good summation. So, Elizabeth, tell tell our listeners how they can um, find you and reach you if they're interested in reaching out. Uh, I'm at the Merrill Lynch Garden City office. My number is uh, 516-877-8383. And, uh, you know, please call uh, if, if you'd like to set up, you know, a further one-on-one uh, -on -one consultation. There's no charge for that. I'm, I'm happy to talk to you to see if I could offer any help. And if you're in a different area, you know, I strongly encourage you to do some research, reach out and speak to um, a financial professional who can really support you since so much of divorce is about finances. And I also want to encourage our listeners, not all of you have listened to our 12-step divorce recovery series. And uh, as I was just listening to Elizabeth talk, I was realizing how many of our 12 steps really help you to stay on track through the negotiation. Step three is communicating with confidence. Step four is being solution oriented. Step six is letting go of judgment so that you can stay clear and on track and, and, and on and on. And so if you're in the early stages or in the midst of divorce and you're finding yourself uh, really struggling with all of the emotions and difficulty that comes along with that I really encourage you to check out our 12-step divorce recovery series. It will it will really help you to keep your head above emotional waters. And if you are interested in reaching out and finding out more about our one-on-one -on -one coaching and how we can support you, uh, please go to journeybeyonddivorce.com and you'll see uh, a contact page. You can just reach out and either myself or one of the coaches on my team would be happy to connect with you and see how we can support you. Thanks for joining us on the Journey Beyond Divorce podcast. I hope you found guidance and encouragement to help you along your journey. If you like my podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. You can also visit us at jbddivorcesupport.com, where our team of coaches support both men and women through our one-on-one -on -one coaching, 
group programs, online courses, and free resources. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I'll talk to you soon.